0: If you're a company and you're trying to own every single last piece of the puzzle that's around around your space, you lose potential opportunities for partnership and growth and making a world where the rising tide raises all
1: boats. Welcome to Inorganic, where we talk about all things inorganic and indirect growth for hyperscale SaaS companies. I'm your host, Christian Hasseld. And on this show, I open source everything I've learned over my 24 year career of building companies. Our guests are exclusively those who have been through the same journey and know how to cheat gravity and accelerate growth. So, who uh, had an easier time getting up this morning? (laughs) I'll tell you, this morning was no factor
0: for me, but yesterday, I had a difficult time getting up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Background, Rob and I had dinner in Las Vegas after a long conference. So not operating on an incredible amount of sleep, but we're ready to give you a great show here. Mm -hmm. Welcome back to Inorganic. My name is Christian Hassold. I'm your host. Talk about inorganic growth strategy for enterprise SaaS companies. Today, I've got my... Former boss, a longtime industry peer and friend with us on the podcast. He is co-founder and CMO of Salsify. They are 12 years into the hypergrowth game. They've got a record of doing some M&A. So I'm excited to have him on the pod and talk about pairing your M&A strategy with your product and how you think about growing your business. So welcome, Rob. Yeah, thanks for having me maybe you could give a little bit of background on salsify and yourself salsify the best way to think about it is a omnichannel
0: product content management platform that's the very simple way if you're not in the business think of yourself as a large branded manufacturer that has wide distribution for your products you're selling on amazon walmart target kroger home depot the whole mess of big retailers in the us and then abroad right the leclairs and fors and Tescos and Woolies and whatnot of the world all over the place. A challenge that you have is managing your product experiences such that they are optimized for driving traffic to your product detail pages on those sites and optimized for converting traffic that arrives on those product detail pages to get those uh, add to carts. So we, we've built a platform that allows a brand to get all their content in one place and then optimize it for each of the channel experiences that they sell through. So that's, that's what Salsify is. We've been doing it for, as Christian said, a long feels like a long time at this point. Been enjoying the ride. I mean, the e-commerce space in general is a great space to work in. It's fast-paced. There's not a lot of regulation or anything like that that you've got to deal with. So I've I've had a lot of fun. My background is a little bit mixed. I was a math and CS double major in college. And then I was an engineer for a few years. And then I was a product manager for a few years. And then I was a product marketer for a few years. And Eventually founded uh, Salsify, and and you know at Salsify
1: I currently run marketing. Thank you for that setup. One of the goals of what we do here on Inorganic is help founders and the leadership teams of SaaS companies think about how to construct an M and A strategy in a hyper growth business. There's often a lot of struggle around how do you kind of think about that strategy and pair it with your your product and your growth strategy. And so my opening question for you, Rob, is how do you think about this question of what is right in terms of pairing m a strategy with product and growth strategy? I think it's a great question. The way that we think about
0: the problem that we solve is the problem that we solve is itself a thorny, platformy kind of problem. If you're a branded manufacturer, I mean, one of, one of our notable customers is Mars, for example. They use us in dozens of countries all over the world. You've got a broad product portfolio. Your products are sold lots of different channels, and they're sold in lots of different geographies. That might mean that you might have literally thousands of people collaborating to get the products to market within the software. I mean, it's almost like a Salesforce is for customer data, like Salsify is for product data within these accounts. And to make that experience smooth and to to make it cohesive, we've got a strong opinion that you've got to build from the ground up a single platform that coordinates all the activity that might happen around a product. So when we think about M&A, we don't think about it, first and foremost, as a way to add functionality to the product. We think that trying to bolt on additional functionality is not going to deliver the greatest experience within the product. It's the integration cost would probably be, when we've looked at it, would be a lot higher than if we would build it ourselves most of the time. So that, that's one area where, where we don't do it. So when you start from the top and you think about what is it that you're building and, and what's special about your product and how do you make it differentiated versus everything that's out there in the market, that can drive the no's almost more than the yeses in this space. As you said, we've been around a long time. So any company that comes up for sale, we get a look at. And a lot of them look like feature bolt-ons. And the feature bolt-ons, we just don't think would yield the, the greatest experience. And an example of this, is In our space, in the United States, our, our biggest competitor in CPG is a syndication-focused company called Syndigo. They're a combination of something like 14 acquisitions. And it is kind of a bolt-on product strategy. And when we go head-to-head with them, their product gets a lot of criticism for feeling like it's kind of bolted together. And ours tends to win on usability and user experience and time-to-value and, and other metrics like that where,
1: where you get advantage from, from one. So that, that's one piece of it. This is a, a really good place to have a quick debate, which is you've been very clear since the beginning that you're a company that believes you can build product better than anyone else. You product founders with really clear conviction. And so thinking of, hey, we'd rather build the capability. There's different things we'll acquire. We'll get into that. There are some companies that, for reasons of speed in terms of growth, and you gave Cyndigo as an example, but others that actually intentionally want to be a platform and somehow figure out M&A in order to kind of put all those pieces together. Maybe Datadog might be an example because they do a lot of acquisitions, primarily of smaller companies. I know you've battle-tested this. You don't just make decisions in a vacuum. You actually have gone to great depths to research it. So how do you really think about the pro-con of like, it's not just about the integrated experience for the customer. It's the speed of growth of the company. You're you're trying to cheat gravity and and grow faster.
0: It depends on fundamentally the the problem that it's solving and whether the problem can be cleanly sliced and diced into, into separable pieces. In technology, there's kind of a, a comes and goes trend, which has been called headless, it's been called composable, microservices is thrown out as a piece of how it, it's built, and there's a feeling that if you could create services that are small services with clean APIs, and those services are are basically not connected except via the APIs, then it's a lot easier to Basically extend your suite of services by, by having another piece that you plug in with a clean API. And this is, this is kind of how Amazon's been built from the ground up. So Amazon famously has the two pizza teams. If you organization that's building a feature is big enough that you can't feed it with two pizzas, then you need to split it up. And they intentionally build APIs between their teams in addition to between their products. And so if you're AWS, you can kind of bolt on a Mongo service when Mongo comes up and it's, it works. So if if your commerce tools, for example, in the composable commerce space, you could probably make an acquisition of a service that's API first and that's complementary to the other services and doesn't need to be that deeply integrated with your other services and make it work. So there's certain types of businesses that are amenable to that type of extension. Another type of extension that you see that's pretty common is if you are putting reporting on top of the software, right? So Salesforce is a core data management. It would be hard to bolt on. The workflow. It would be hard to bolt on any data model extensive capabilities or triggers or the programmatic architecture that allows you to basically make Salesforce do anything. But you could throw reporting on top of that, no problem. You, know, you could imagine Salesforce buying Clary or something like that, putting a once over on the interface so that the UX looks like lightning. And it could probably work that well, right? It's, it's integration into the core data flows of the platform are lightweight. For us, Everything that we've built, when we think about what what goes into the core versus what can be delivered through integration, what goes into the core is anything that intimately impacts the data flows. And I'll I'll give you an example just to to go back to reporting. We've got a certain type of, of digital shelf analytic which monitors whether the content that we've sent to, for example, Amazon, goes live and is what we expect it to be. You get a notification whether it goes live, and if it's not when it goes live, it can create a workflow, and that type of thing. For us, has to be cleanly built into the user experience. The reporting is part of the product detail pages, right? It's it's kind of it's really integrated into the suite of tools. It's not just a report that's on the side that then you go back into somewhere else in the software to deal with. It's built into the software. There's a lot of other reporting that can go off on the side that's that's very complementary. So we, you know, we partner with like an Essential Edge or a Profitero, and they've got digital shelf analytics that very much have to do with what we do, like share of voice, share of category. But you know they're, they're not tightly integrated to the data flows, and they don't really have to be part of the platform. So I, I think if you think about it that way, the closer that something is really tied into the core experience, and for us, it's tightly tied into the data management, data modeling workflows, the more that integration gives you differentiation and advantage and, and capability that's hard to do via purely integrations, the more that the pieces are, can be lightly coupled, the more that the, what you're talking about can be a, a great situation. Datadog's an example, right? Datadog, a lot of lightly coupled services, not tightly integrated, so that model actually works for them.
1: No, actually, you know, just kind of to go back to exactly what you just said, which is this is, I think, a decision that frequently is where there's probably a lot of debate, right? So you're a platform and one of your capabilities is analytics. So one might say, hey, if you see a company, let's just say where you mentioned Profitero, I think we know Profitero went through a sale process a couple of years back, you probably looked at it. And in your evaluation, you're thinking, okay, can we add X millions of dollars in revenue to our business by adding this product in the portfolio? And if I translate what you're saying is, one, the integrated experience for the customer was critical but i think the other thing that you you didn't say explicitly but i think is implied is the feature set that's required for your customers to have that workflow experience is like probably an nth of what that other product brings and you really want them to stay inside of the product rather have to leave the product go work in something else and then come back and you're willing to I mean, whatever it would take, if you were going to add like $10 in revenue by adding on this particular target company, you're actually willing to battle it out for a couple of years to get that revenue into that product bucket rather than create complication for your customer and complication for your team and adding on that kind of an asset. Or never get that revenue. I think it's
0: perfectly fine if you're Salesforce. I don't think you feel threatened by Clary. The fact that Clary is doing really well is fine, right? So I'm in Boston. There's a great company in Boston, Clavio, that is going to go public or you know, right around now. Their numbers are phenomenal. It's a great company. Most of their business is a plug into Shopify. I don't think Shopify is sitting there saying, God, we wish we had Clavio as part of the suite. Part of being a platform means that you've got an ecosystem that's healthy, that's around you, that extends capabilities and complements it. Bill Gates famously has the Bill Gates line, which is the real measure of a platform is people that are building on you make more money than you do. On that in the ecosystem, right? I think that's true. So if you're a company and you're trying to own every single last piece of the puzzle that's around around your space, you lose potential opportunities for partnership and growth, and making a world where the rising tide raises all boats. And so for, for us, I think that the ecosystem component is is a big part of it. I mean, you, maybe you get a short term juice in revenue, but then. It means you don't get to partner with Essential Edge. All of a sudden, you're competing with them head to head because you've got an analytics suite that's comp- competitive with them. You don't get to compete with, you know, like a, you know, Commerce IQ, for example, has has analytics capabilities. I don't, I, we'd all of a sudden find ourselves in competition with them, and we don't necessarily want to open that front. It's not core to the business. And So I, I think if you if you look at it from that lens, yeah, you get some short term revenue growth, but. If it's not core to the business, are you opening up a battlefront that, that you really are concerned about fighting? You know, another example is um, Power Reviews just traded to One World Sync, right? And a lot of people got to look at Power Reviews. But do we really want to make Bizarre Voice our competitor? Do we, do we want to wade in there? Is that like a, a battlefront? Is that really core to what we're de- the value that we're delivering to our customers? Is that how they see us? No, we'd rather work with both of them. They're great, you know, and, and so so I think that there's, there's a reality here, which is that you can boost short-term profitability, but how many, how many fronts are you going to fight at one time? I tend to think that sticking to your knitting and being focused, if your market is big enough, if the prospect base is large enough, if your TAM is large enough in your core market, you're almost always better focusing on that and getting that to work better than you are expanding and expanding. Into adjacent markets, and it just makes the company unwieldy. So, so I, I mean, I hear you on the on the revenue juice side, but it's not simply that we think that we could go on our own and build an integrated analytics suite and get that money at some point. It's more, it's not money
1: that we that we think is core to the business. I mean, you've made it really clear what essentially you wouldn't do, and kind of the framework, the way through which you think about it. What kind of M and A then is right for a company that follows your line of thinking? We've made four acquisitions. And the way that we look at it is we either
0: get an acquisition gives us industry or geographic expansion opportunity, or it gives us a network expansion opportunity. So as I said before, we're omni-channel content management. Think of buying a company that all of a sudden enables you to publish to every single major retailer in CPG in France directly, right? That's an interesting acquisition for us. And we made that acquisition. It was a company called Alchemix. And Alchemix actually came with a piece of technology, which is interesting because it's, it's an example of a piece of technology that can be loosely coupled with our core platform. Our core platform, we sell to branded manufacturers. Alchemix core platform, supplier experience management, they sell to retailers. And it basically stands up a portal that makes it easy to publish content to retailers. So that company gives us a network in France, but it also gives us a piece of technology that makes it easier to expand our network elsewhere in the world. We've sold it in the U.S. We've sold it in Australia. It's adopted in the U.K. That's an example of an interesting network and piece of technology. Another company that's similar in the network space is we bought SkewVantage in Australia. They are the dominant CPG content network in Australia. They work with you know Woolies and Coles and all the big retailers that are in the CPG space in, in Australia. They have a piece of technology, but we're Going to migrate off of it onto the core platform over time. We're not we're not interested in doing the integ- integration with it. It's not it's not their core differentiation. So we bought them for the network. Another example like that's like that is Welcome Commerce. They had a chat network in the U.S. They had their JavaScript tag to power live chat on Walmart.com and Target.com and a couple others. And so when we purchased them, the core chat technology, we weren't sure if that was a business or or not a business. It turned out to we we just unwound the chat part of it. But the tag enabled us to inject content onto target.com and walmart.com live and to measure analytic performance on target.com and walmart.com. So we bought network expansion with welcome. And then the fourth is b 2 B2X partners, which allowed us to go industry expansion. The uh, individual, it was was like almost a consultancy. the really, really well-regarded consultancy in B2B industrial supply distribution in the United States. And we went from zero presence there to fairly credible presence there simply through that acquisition, and it's enabled us to kind of test and learn our way into that large market. And and again, that's not a technology percentage; it's a you know industry geographic expansion. So geographic network expansions, industry expansions—it's more like the business shape that drives those acquisitions. And there's only one piece of technology that we've that we've bought.
1: So really, before acquisitions, since 2018, buying a way into geography, buying capability specific to a geography, or that was at one point specific, but extensible to your broader market opportunity. I always like to talk about the importance of, of people in acquisitions. Can you share a little bit about how talent played a role in each of those acquisitions or ones that I think are memorable to you? Talent for us in B2X Partners was the reason to do the deal.
0: Justin King is phenomenal. He's, he's well-known in that space. So that, that was the reason that we did that deal. And he's still with us. And that's like an, on one end of the extreme. On the other end of the extreme, Welcome Commerce. They had actually a couple fantastic people at the company that stayed with us for years. Dan Herman was one of the co-founders. And he ran our retail strategy for years after, after he joined. You know, as an entrepreneur, he's a phenomenal entrepreneur. He built a network that included Walmart and Target in the U.S., and that's hard to do. There's very few people that have succeeded in doing that. He stayed with us for a bit, but it's just you don't keep founders forever. They 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 leave. So they, you get you get the talent while you can, and then they go and they found another company. So that was great, and we got some some engineering talent out of that acquisition as well. But you know the engineering talent was was great for us. They're fin- they're fantastic engineers, but they weren't the reason that we did the company. The company was small enough; it was like 13 people that there wasn't that much of a cultural integration, right? It was sort of, they just, they just got absorbed. With Alchemix, it was over 150 people in France. And that's been more challenging in general from a cultural integration perspective. It's a US and France are totally different business environments to operate in, totally different business cultures. These are in broad strokes statements, so don't take them as law, but they tend to be a little bit more hierarchical in the way that they manage their teams. In the US and tech in particular, we tend to have more like flatter org structures. Even if there's lots of layers in an org, people are not afraid to speak up to the senior executives in the US. In France, that's much less of a thing. So there's, you know, there's there's differences that we've had to work through there. And, and ultimately, you can't really quite create the same culture for two businesses that are like that. And for that large of an acquisition, we, you know, we went through the process of just trying to Trying to think you know how is this going to work? what's true about the culture of the combined company? What do we have to change about how we operate in order to bring them in or not? That's been a real journey for us over the, over the years on that side. I think where i where I've kind of come to at the end of the day, this is my personal point of view. This is not actually a point of view that's shared with with everybody even at Salsify, but I tend to think that when you make an acquisition, almost the, the healthiest thing to do is to just say. We're acquiring this business. And then, kind of, it's almost like a private equity point of view. Go in there and evaluate the talent as quickly and as thoroughly as you can. And the people that you believe should be part of the journey, you're almost like hiring them, right? This is a hiring process. You're now joining this team. Are you committed to this team and what we're doing? I think if you take that perspective, it's an aggressive perspective. You're not trying to sort of preserve what was special about the business that you acquired or anything like that. I think that ends up in it and tends to end up in a better place. That's what Oracle does that there's pros and cons to that approach, but I found that it is difficult to acquire a company with a distinct culture and a distinct way of working and a distinct way of being and uh, gently merge that in. That's, that's a, that's a difficult thing to accomplish. I think
1: I didn't intend for that question to go there, but actually that's where I wanted to land. The episode was on sort of a learning and cross border MA, whether you're a European company buying U.S. company or the other way around, that process is just magnitudes of, of scale harder for exactly what you're talking about. I'd be interested in, in your view. Your choices are really one of two things, which is, for lack of a better term, to kind of kick the can down the road and sort of let the culture and the integration sort of figure it out over a period of time. And then you get a sense of who the, the people in the org are. And whether it's a fit for them or a fit for you, you know there a little bit of it sorts itself out through that process. The cost of it is the one thing that is the sort of the worst thing to miscalculate in m a especially small m a is how much uncertainty weighs in on the culture when people don't have confidence in like am I going to be here in six months when they're not clear on Why this deal? Who is my boss? I I didn't apply to work for this boss. I applied to work for this boss. Now I have a new one and they're in the US. That uncertainty creates so much noise and so much organizational friction. The idea of actually going in and doing what you're talking about, which is, I think it's a Vista playbook to do that, is to go in and interview people all over again. It not only is valuable from the perspective of making sure the people that are, are going to be a fit for the long one, it's giving everyone an opportunity to actually have face time with the person that they're going to be working very closely with. This is a battlefront. You're trying to grow a company really fast. You better be really aligned and have those close relationships. That interview process actually works to a benefit because it's not just about you to them. It's a two-way conversation. Yeah, I agree with that. But I'll say under, underneath it all, this is
0: sort of a little bit of libertarianism coming out here, but one of the most powerful human motivators is agency. And if someone finds themselves working for a company they didn't choose, even if there's no ambiguity about whether they're going to be here in six months or not, there's not necessarily the commitment. They're always, you know, it's it's like the one foot in the past in a way, in what the in the company that they came from. But when you go through the interview process, you're basically Forcing the choice of, are you choosing to be here now that this has happened? That's almost the most important bit. So it's not, you're not really looking for who you're going to cut. You're looking for who you, who is opting in. And once they opt in, then there's no sort of excuses anymore. There's no like, we used to do it this way or not. Otherwise, you know, it's just, I don't know, you're kind of dragging out things that are going to be problematic at some point. I remember pretty recently I listened to an interview with one of the Waze founders. You know, Google bought Waze for three billion something dollars. And never really. I mean, what was weird about it to me is why didn't they just integrate it into Google Maps? Why do they have Ways and Maps? It's so confusing. But yeah, big part of it was that I think Google wanted Ways to keep its culture and wanted to the Waze team to keep innovating, and they didn't want to just absorb them. But what ended up happening is the the founder left pissed anyway. Years later, because it was becoming like too corporate and too googly and and you're sort of I don't I don't know, and, and it's unclear to me to what advantage, right? I mean, it's not like. You know, day one, if they had bought the thing and, you know, who knows, who knows, by the way, if Waze would have sold under these conditions. But you can imagine a a different world where they buy it and they say, look, Waze is going to be the engine underneath Google Maps for traffic. But the app is going away. We're going to we're going to merge every single thing we can out of it. We might drop some some of the community aspects of it. But that, you know, we bought this so that it can be the mapping function under Google Maps. Right? You can imagine a world where like that was the integration statement. And then people from Waze are saying, yeah, I'm either going to be part of Google, that's what I'm joining here, or yeah, I'm going to do another startup. Maybe that would have been a better, better outcome for folks emotionally, rather than sort of dragging it out. You know, it's like, it's like a bad marriage where you're not divorced yet. You kind of can see it coming maybe in a few years, maybe, maybe it's a job change that breaks the camel's back. But I don't know. I just think that there's, there's a lot of power to somebody opting in and saying yes and just being clear about what you're, where you're going and having no compromise about it versus pretending that it's that it's not that at some point. So that that's where I come from on this. Like, again, there's not. I don't think that you're going to get complete alignment, even even within my organization about that. About <laughs> in a that, room full of people, you're going
1: to get a lot of debate. I think this is a very healthy debate to have. There are some people who are comfortable contemplating their agency and having command of their agency and their ability to do something else. And some people are not in a position to do that yet for wherever they are in their career or whatever their mindset is. So you have to kind of account for that. I think it, you, that your example with Google mm-hmm. is great. Google is not a fair comparison for the kind of people that we'd be talking here because they have teams of organizational psychologists who spend time sort of really thinking about this and, and incorporating that into the playbook. Whereas the kinds of M&A that a SaaS company would do doesn't have the, that, kind of, that kind of resourcing. But I love that example. It's a really good example just talking about intentionality. Did you have something else you were going to say?
0: Well, I was going to say just on the on the agency front, even if you go with the people that are junior in their career.
1: I was trying not to say it that way.
0: Yeah, it's you can always not work there, right? Viktor Frankl, the philosopher, you always choose what's going on up here. So there's, you know, there's reframings. Let's say you're going to work and that's what's happening today. It's not not happening, you're just that's what's happening. You're going to work. You can either think about it like I have to go to work or you can Think about it like I get to go to work, and I think, and you can help people make that framing choice by having the choice be there for them to make. But if you don't give them the choice, then I think, especially in an an acquisitive perspective, if you're if you're the company that's being that's being acquired, there's a little bit of like I have to. On balance, it's going to be a little bit like that. Especially, I mean, you're talking about SaaS acquisitions; it's usually a bigger company acquiring a little company, the little company felt more like a family, felt more like a startup. I remember what it was like when we were five, 10, 15 people. It's different. It's so different, right? And all of a sudden you wake up one day, you didn't know that the acquisition talks were happening, but boom, you're no longer part of like little startup co, you're now part of like big co. I think it is important to to give people whether or not at the end of the day they feel like they have any, you know, they they can or not leave for personal financial reasons or career growth or whatever it is if you at least give them that moment to, to pause and say, yeah, I, I do choose to be here, at least some of them, it'll be a mindset shift. So and for what it's worth, I think people do have agency in their mind. It's a very stoic point of view, but I think people do have agency in their mind and, and it's worth uh, worth pushing on it.
1: Well, we we started on what is the right kind of MA to do based on your product strategy and your vision. And I think you've provided an incredible amount of clarity on how to be thinking about it if you really believe that you're the best founding team, the best company to build the product and an integrated experience for your customer, then how to think about the kinds of M&A you would do in that context. And we landed on people. And I think people and culture are a really important part of integration success. So I didn't even have to like run the pod and the the questioning the order. We landed there naturally, which is an awesome way to end. So Rob, I want to thank you so much for coming on the inorganic pod and sharing your thoughts it was super helpful and as you know you've been a great friend advisor over the over the years appreciate you being a part of the launch series yeah thanks for having me on and for all of you out there thanks for joining us on inorganic we'll see you next time thank you for listening to the inorganic podcast make sure to check out the show notes and description for a rundown of today's show and all the important links if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and let's continue the conversation on my LinkedIn. I'm Christian Hassold. Happy scaling.